This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Alberry's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm the Assistant Director here at the Hendricks Center at DTS. And today, we are going to be discussing the ways that broken marriages impact our society every day, and we probably have no idea that we are experiencing their impact. So we are joined by Ken Sandy, who is the founder of Peacemaker Ministries and Relational Wisdom 360, so two different ministries, and the author of the very popular book, The Peacemaker. So Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here, Kimberly. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So how? let's just introduce you a bit to everybody. You've been on the podcast one time before, but in case somebody hasn't heard that one, do you want to just share with us a little bit, how did you come to regularly deal with helping other people address their relationships and particularly conflicts in their life? Yeah, well, I'm I'm an engineer and an attorney, so I'm a problem solver by uh, nature and training. In uh, 1982, founded Peacemaker Ministries, and our goal was to help Christians resolve conflicts outside of the civil court system. And so a lot of the work we did and the people we trained were doing was broken marriages or marriages were on the brink of a divorce. Uh, I personally handled about 600 divorce mediations myself, uh, over half of which reconciled, thanks be to God. Um, Some of them came to me literally 24 hours before the final divorce decree. So people were right on the brink. Uh, So I've been involved in a lot of divorces over the years. I've seen the impact, but I've also seen what God can do to turn those things around as well. So this is something I carry very deeply about. Um, I've sat in my office with, you know, seven-year-old young young girl just weeping over her parents' impending divorce. And I've seen firsthand what is accepted pretty commonly is that children at that age think the divorce is their fault. And no matter what you say, they still think I've seen little girls beg daddy all Wear my pretty dress, Daddy. I'll be really nice, Daddy. Please don't leave. So I've seen the pain, and I've seen how God can intervene. So this is a subject that's very, very significant to me. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it is, I mean, we're talking about family, right? And we're talking about parents. Mm -hmm. And so whenever a broken marriage is is in view and is in the conversation, we're talking about things that are just so deeply felt and, you know, the not just the, um, we'll get to, you know, the impact of it on our lives and on our society, but like just the emotional impact and like the personal investment in the conversation is you just almost can't even communicate <laughs> how deep it is. And for about half of the people who are listening, potentially, um, it, you know, you'll Get, hopefully be able to share a few statistics with us later on, but like about half of the people listening might actually be a part of a broken marriage themselves mm-hmm. or, and many, many more will be a part of 
um, will be in families that have been impacted by broken marriages, directly impacted. It's in their family. And so for those of you who are listening and might be in (laughs) that situation yourself, and you actually were brave enough to click on this podcast and and to say, okay, well, I want to hear what they have to say about broken marriages. We first just want to let you know that you are loved and you are valued and this episode and everything Ken and I are about to talk about is not an indictment against you um, or against your life. It's more of like an exploration of the unseen and the underappreciated like consequences of like of broken marriages within our society. That's more what we're talking about. We're not um, trying to talk about your specific situation. And and really, hopefully, we're trying to better understand your world and your pain and how we've all actually been impacted by it. And we might not even know it. Ken, do you have any thoughts on that, on what you would like to say to people ahead of time as far as what they might hear and making sure that they hear our heart behind this conversation? Well, really to echo what you said, Kimberly, in some in some churches, we we unconsciously send the message that divorce is somehow the unforgivable sin. And that's not true. There, there's no sin that Christ cannot forgive. And there's all sorts of things that are listed in the Bible as, as very serious in God's eyes. And we know that a lot of divorces, people don't choose. Someone else divorces them. Yeah. And they've been they've been unable to stop it. They still feel, in many cases, I mean, the pain is inevitable. But sometimes they also feel a lot of guilt and shame, which should not be on their shoulders. But I also want to speak to those who have divorced, even divorced for unbiblical grounds. The gospel is there for them, and and there can be healing, there can be forgiveness, even if it's beyond the point where the marriage can be restored. There can still be personal reconciliation. And I've been part of many of those things. So there's always hope in Christ, no matter what we've done, no matter what we've experienced, no matter what others have done to us, God is still there with his arms open wide for us. The gospel is there too. So whatever your situation is, uh, and also I would just say to people that may be concerned about a, a child or a friend or a coworker heading toward a broken marriage, you can play a huge role often to be a channel of God's grace in a situation. So Almost every person in our country is one way or the other, directly or indirectly impacted by this very relevant topic. Yes. Yeah. And we also just want to, I want to quickly just say we are also in no way advocating that people stay in abusive situations. If you are in a broken marriage or a problematic marriage because of uh, abuse, God very clearly condemns um, oppression and calls on believers to move to um, react to that. And we in no way are, when we're talking about broken marriages, we are not speaking about uh, abusive marriages in this specific episode. I just want to make that very clear as well. Um, And so now that we have that, and hopefully everybody can hear where we're coming from, again, just because it is such a heartfelt Uh, topic. We just want to be sensitive to anybody who's listening because everybody, like we said, is impacted by this. So just to settle a little bit into the topic, what do we have in view when we are talking about broken marriages? And Ken, what do you think is at the core of most struggling non-abusive marriages? What do you think is well, if you use if you use the the broad term broken marriages, there's a lot of people who are still legally married who are in a yeah. broken marriage, yeah. and then there are people who are legally divorced. But even there, 
if they've got children, they have an ongoing relationship for the rest of their lives. So there, there's any number of arrangements that fall under that heading, Kimberly. What I say when I speak on this topic is God's design for marriage in the beginning, according to Jesus himself, was one man, one woman together for life. That's the ideal. But when Jesus was challenged on some marital issues, he said, but it was because of the hardness of your heart that God allowed divorce. And so sin is the, the ultimate cause of any broken relationship. That's whether it's a friendship, parent-child, or a marriage relationship being broken. So sin, selfishness, lust, craving, anger, unresolved issues like that, those are the things that is a sand that gets into the gears of a marriage and eventually wears it down to the point where it'll be broken. But what I found, and this is significant, is the even though the ultimate cause of a broken marriage or divorce is sin, the precipitating or triggering cause is hopelessness. Mm. People can stay in a difficult relationship for a long time if they have hope that things will get better. And a, a very common situation is uh, a husband's going uh, back to school for an advanced degree. He's pursuing his master's or doctorate degree spending long hours at work and at school, doesn't have time with the kids, his marriage is, is, is not as deep as it used to be, but the wife will hang in there in most cases. He's going to graduate in, in June. You know, it'll be over with. So if there's some reason for hope, people will often hang in there. Um, and especially if there's hope that's generated by people starting to address their sin, go to counseling and those things. But once hope is gone, in our day and age, where even where you know a couple generations ago, you just stayed in there for life no matter what. That was what society told you to do. But today, when hope is gone, that's when people pull the trigger and move toward divorce. And what's interesting is women in the United States, 66% of the people who file for divorce are women. And that is, that is actually ratcheted up as high as 75% at times. And it's when they just give up hope that that relationship is ever going to get any better. So one of the first things we do when we get involved in conciliation is how do we inject hope? We, we can't cure all the problems, change all the behavior instantly, but what can we do to bring hope back to that situation as quickly as possible? So what are some of those things that you do or, or suggest? Like how do you inject hope? Yeah. Well, the single greatest way to inject hope is to see the Holy Spirit work in at least one party's heart to bring about sincere, heartfelt, broken repentance. Now, even that is not always a guarantee because I've seen some people who've hardened their heart so much, no matter what the other spouse says or does, their, their heart is just dead. But I've also seen hope visibly come back into the eyes of a party when one spouse gives a humble, authentic, deep confession. And so we spend a lot of time helping people really look to God and, and ask for the Holy Spirit to give them the gift of repentance. And that is a gift of the Holy Spirit to come to that brokenness. I'm working in a case right now where the husband's heart is so hard. I mean, he's destroying his marriage by his own actions, and yet he just refuses to see it. He's unable to see the harm he's doing to his wife and his children, which is heartbreaking. But I've also been in situations where through counseling, being in God's word, praying for the Holy Spirit, I've seen people just completely crumble under, under the realization of how much they have hurt other people. When that happens, and then somebody can make a credible, authentic, sincere confession, very often the other spouse will go, whoa, 
I, I've, I've never heard this before. This mm. is different. This is different. And at those times, we'll often say, can we just put the divorce proceeding on hold? Talk to your attorney, just put it on hold for three months. Let's see what can happen. And so you turn it around. So authentic repentance and confession followed up by sincere efforts in counseling and discipleship to change and grow. That's the single best way to put hope back in a situation. Fascinating. Okay, sorry, that was just an aside. I'm like, well, what? How do you inject hope? So for those, but but again, our this this specific conversation is hoping to talk about um, the societal impact of these yeah. broken marriages, particularly divorce. So so you know, for those who that isn't possible and and hope you know, they're remaining in that hopeless situation. What are some of the statistics that we should be aware of? Like you just said, 66 to 75% of all divorces are filed by women. Mm-hmm. Um, what other statistics should we be aware of? Well, the United States has the highest divorce rate in, in the world today. We're higher than Russia. <laughs> so societally, societally, we're not able to hold our marriages together in this country. On average, we're seeing about 750,000 divorces a year in the United States. So it's, I mean, it's just, you can break that down by the day, by the minute, by the, by the second. It's just, it's, it's huge. And the way I would liken the cost of divorce, Kimberly, um, it's like the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima, and there's there's a intense damage in the I mean, just they obliterated everything right in the center of that blast. And then there was a place that was affected by heat that went out and wind that went out. And then even further than that was radiation. And so divorce has a intense impact on certain people, but it radiates out and affects us. It affects me. My taxes are affected by the high divorce rate in my state. So just for example, just talk about the epicenter here. The people going through a divorce, there's very few things in life that are more emotionally traumatizing than to have another person who you bound yourself to for life, who knows you better than anyone else, say, I reject you. I no longer want to be with you. It's devastating emotionally and psychologically to experience that. And many people never recover from that. The rest of their life, their relationships are guarded, they're tentative, they're afraid to remarry. Um, There's all sorts of ways that the person who's being divorced is is impacted directly. Financial impact of divorce, suddenly you've got, in many cases, a family that had an income that was supporting one household, and now they have two households. And they, the cost of that now of having either rent or mortgage for another household, that money is taken away from all sorts of things, the, the food and groceries they can have, the special activities the kids can do. Um, divorce tends to move women and children into poverty, especially women and children. In spite of all the other things that have changed in recent years, women are still impacted the most financially. There's a loss of friendships, people who used to be around. People used to do things with as a couple, you're no longer a couple. Many people lose their church over divorce. Um, It's just the strain in relationship with your children that goes on. Uh, Children are often caught in between. They're the conduit of unresolved conflict. So just that person going through the divorce. And then there's a person who may be divorcing the other one, maybe legitimately. Maybe there is unrepentant abuse, and we've been unable to deal with it through either civil 
I mean, I've called the sheriff on, on people. I was the one that called him or church discipline, some kind of pressure. And I was unable to do it. So you might have a legitimate reason for the divorce. You made every effort to save it and it was unsuccessful. But I would say that even if someone pursues an unbiblical divorce, has an affair, for example, breaks off, they also pay a price. Sin exacts a toll on us, our conscience, our closeness to God, the emptiness in our life, the guilt and shame, a stranger from our children. Uh, it, it has huge impact. You move out the next circle, the children, um, the financial loss they have of having a united household, parents who are distracted, angry, bitter, sad, depressed, are no longer able to parent adequately. There's all sorts of statistics indicating that children in divorced families increase risk of leaving the church, dropping out of school, alcohol and drug abuse, um, sexual activity, criminal activity, some of those increase by a factor of three or four. Now, it's not inevitable, but the exposure and the odds of those things happening to children go up significantly. Well, sorry, real quick on that. I actually, um, in you know, in preparing for this conversation, I ran across a, there's a Finnish study, so like from Finland, that found um, that adult children of divorced parents actually experience more job loss uh, the more conflict with their teachers and their supervisors and like more interpersonal conflict. So it's not even just, uh, yeah. when, you know, they're young and they're trying to navigate all of that. And it's a tough childhood. It, it, again, societally, like even yeah. as they grow and they become contributing members of society, there's still this residue that can't be, you know, can't be, yeah cleaned off, you know, and, and so, and, and if you think of a whole generation of people, you know, or multiple generations of that, sorry, I'm, I'm getting in on what you're saying too, but it just, it, I couldn't believe that because I mean, I think it, I didn't see where, who sponsored that, but you know, it wasn't a faith-based yeah. institution that sponsored it, you know, and they're finding these things about that. Sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. The, the, children. the, the impact on divorce on say a seven-year-old can follow that person to the day he dies mm -hmm. because the chances, especially for girls of getting into high-risk marriages, when they first start to marry there, there's going to be a reactive attachment disorder that was triggered through the divorce, their ability to identify healthy relationships, find healthy partners, have healthy marriages is diminished. So their likelihood of going through difficult marriages, and that can then track them all the way to the day they die. Cause if they're in broken marriages, they lose retirement access, their ability to get an edge. I mean, the ripples are all over the place on those people, but it doesn't stop there. The employers, when an employer has a worker, an employee goes through divorce, on average, the employer loses 25% of that employee's productivity for two years. That's about $8,000 per year hit to the employer because the employee is distracted He's irritable. He's less engaged with his staff. He's gone at court hearings all the time. He has to pick up his kids because there's all these visitation issues. Employers are impacted. It often takes about five years for people to recover from a divorce to the point where the behavior in the workplace is again back to normal. So employers pay a price for this. There's more depression. There's more alcohol use. Uh, there's more health issues for employees going through divorce. So employers pay a price. Then you move out to society at large all sorts of implications. Because families 
families are the nucleus of society. Every society, since the foundation of the world, the family, the man and woman come together, having children, raising children to be responsible, con, you know, contributing parts of a of a tribe, of a nation, of a community. In the so you can think of a family like a brick. And I, I was in Africa one time, and they told me that they made bricks with straw. In fact, we've seen the Bible; they were making bricks for Pharaoh with straw. The trouble in Africa is termites, and the termites will actually get in there and eat right up through that straw, and just go right in the brick, eating the straw. Pretty soon you've got a brick with no straw. That's what holds it together. And the bricks crumble. Mm. So when you've got families crumbling, I mean, I saw all these buildings. So I was in Uganda. The building is tipping over because the bricks are falling apart. So when families fall apart, society play, pays a huge role. Um, we, we talk about all these issues about children with drug and alcohol abuse, not doing as well in school, dropping out. Society pays a price for that. Social services counselors, um, criminal, you know, juvenile behavior, incarceration. You look at the statistics on the number of people who are in our prisons, 70% of the people who are in prison come from broken homes. Mm. 70%. Now, many of those probably could, could end up with criminal behavior, even if the divorce had not occurred. But if, if just a portion of those families that stayed together and helped deal with that young person when he was starting to get into some destructive habits, it could reduce substantially the likelihood of later criminal behavior. Well, America, just in our state prison systems, I, don't even, I didn't find the figures on federal, but our state prisons spend $43 billion a year incarcerating people. We have the highest prison population per capita in the world. That's a price that I pay every time I get a paycheck and I see what's deducted mm. from my paycheck. Part of that money is going to support the prison system, the police, the everything else in my state, not to mention federal. So those implications uh, go out. And just the, the, the brokenness, the hostility, our inability to deal with other issues in a united way, poverty, broken homes, et cetera, trafficking, we're distracted. The money's going elsewhere. So the ripple effects even diminish our ability to deal with other issues in society that get worse as well, that aren't directly caused by the divorce, but our ability to deal with those is actually diminished because of the price we're paying for divorce. So it's huge. It's absolutely yeah. huge. Now, I want to quickly say, though, I want to put a caveat. I do not want to put pressure on somebody who's listening to this broadcast. Who's going, That's what oh, I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this horrible marriage, and I better not yeah. do it. No, I don't want to send that message. What I do say to people who come to me, let's just make sure we leave no reasonable stone unturned to try to mm -hmm. save your marriage. I, I, if, if it's going to fail, I want you to walk away with a clear conscience that you made every effort to understand and deal with your contribution to the breakdown of the family, that you're growing through this thing. You've made every opportunity for the other person to change and grow. And if that person refuses, continues with destructive behavior, then you can leave that marriage. It'll still be difficult, but the, the benefit of having a clear conscience is, is huge. And so I've walked with people through that process where they got the divorce, legitimately biblical grounds, Clear conscience. They still had a lot of challenges, to be sure, but the value of a clear conscience is incredible. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you know, if those who are in broken marriages, it's not like they're fully responsible for all yeah. of society's problems no. <laughs> in any way. But it is, again, it is something that 
I had never really thought about until I actually heard you speak on it of just all of these different ways that society is impacted, even if, you know, like right now, Lord willing, for the rest of my life, I am in a very lovely marriage. I love my husband and we're in a great like situation. And so, but the reality that that I am impacted by other people's broken relationships and more than just, you know, a loss of communal cohesion, which is something, you know, like bad friendships and that kind of thing, because friends get split, like you were talking about earlier, but, but, you know, like the things, the money that I pay and the future workers that I will employ, you know, and not just because of the divorce that they might go through, but if they were children of divorces, then all of a sudden I'm the supervisor that they're having conflict with, you know, like there's all of these different tentacles around it that I had never really thought about. And God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. One other thing that I thought that kind of occurred to me was, have you heard of the book uh, or or the kind of the idea of inherited trauma? Um, mm. So like inherited generational trauma. So there's a book called, uh, It Didn't Start With You. Mm. And it, it's, it's kind of in the same vein, I think, as... Uh, the oh what's the other book about it your body um well the body remembers keep score score. score. yeah so it's that same idea but that essentially that trauma and even this kind of thing that happens like the emotional trauma and everything that we've been talking about gets passed on even through essentially like the dna Mm -hmm. and um and so even future generations are dealing with the physical impact of that. And, and so not even just, is it our society and the kids that go through it and any, like any consequence that it has in their life, but potentially it's even passed on to future generations and it affects who they will even be. It's just startling. (laughs) Well, as the Bible says, the sins of the fathers, And there, there's a lot of ways the sins of fathers are passed on to children by our example, by undermining their stability. Is there sometimes a spiritual, what you would even call a curse that's visited? We see in the Bible whole nations being cursed for generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very sobering, very sobering. But the good news is what I love is through the power of the gospel, those chains and those cycles can be broken. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what's so beautiful. And I you know, I've worked with people who went through difficult divorce or their parents went through a, a difficult divorce. And yet to see how Christ can redeem in those situations and make that part of people's life testimony is that even coming from that difficult background, 
that here's what Jesus has done in my life, and here's how he's changed me. Here's the, the grace and the redemption, the forgiveness I've experienced. So no matter what the situation is, um, what was it? The uh, you know, there, There's no problem so great that Christ is not greater still. Well, it's almost like, uh, and, and for the sake of, with regard to society, but even what you're saying, like Jesus, Jesus becomes the straw, mm-hmm. you know, that like yep. stabilizes our own individual lives and our own individual families, even if they are broken and cracked, you know, but he also in doing that, he helps stabilize our societies even, you know, and we can have faith and not despair. Like you said, (laughs) the core is hopelessness. We don't want to leave people hopeless (laughs) with regard to this um, wound essentially in our society. So, you know, making that turn, even for people who might be listening and they find themselves in bad marriages or they, they're friends of people who find themselves in bad marriages. I I know we're not saying this, but I'm just going to ask. So are we saying that people should just stay in bad marriages so that society can, you know, be, you know, a full building and it's not tilting over, you know, what, what do we say and how do we address the reality that there are bad marriages out there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, What I always try to, again, going back to what I said earlier is just make sure that You've not walked away prematurely when there was still some chance. Now, that's a subjective issue. And I find m- most of us are unable to deal with a really hard subjective question on our own. That's where you need your pastor. You need close friends. Uh, when you're having a difficult marriage, one thing for sure is you don't want friends who are just going to tell you what you want to hear. You want friends who love you enough to tell you what you need to hear, which may be distance yourself from this abusive spouse. Or it may be, don't give up. I think there's still some hope here. So we we need objective, godly people who have courage and wisdom and everything else. Um, so no, don't. I, we're not saying just stay in a difficult marriage. In fact, one of the one of the things that I'm convinced of is churches need to do a better job of advertising to their congregations their positions on grounds for divorce. Because, you know, historically, a lot of evangelical churches have only held to two grounds, unrepentant adultery by a spouse or abandonment by a non-believing spouse. Those are sort of the two that many evangelical churches would take, some more conservative, some less, but those that's sort of the norm. Um, I, I used to be in that camp, Kimberly, but I, over time, as I studied the Bible more, looked at, you know, just the, as I observed people and marriages breaking down, I'm convinced there's a very solid biblical argument that unrepentant, prolonged abuse or neglect also constitute grounds for divorce. Now, some people may disagree. We've got some articles on our website giving both sides of those things, but I I think there's a very strong argument. Now, I emphasize the modifiers, prolonged, unrepentant, because I've seen people who neglected families who turned around learned to love families. I've seen people who were abusive, who learned how to manage their emotions, their own inner trauma, and figure out how that was impacting, how they treated others. They learned to love their spouse, love their children. So those things can be turned around. But I, I, it, it breaks my heart to think of on every Sunday, there may be a family sitting there in church that has smiles on their face, but at home, one of those spouses, and it's quite often the man, if we're talking about a physical type of abuse, is overbearing, oppressive, emotionally oppressive, and nobody knows about it. And often the wife, if she's in an evangelical church, has somehow picked up the idea, I just need to bear this. 
And our church, for example, adopted some a document called Relational Commitments, where we advertise this to the congregation. One statement we have in there is, uh, we believe it is a responsibility of the church to become involved in situations where there's tensions or difficulties in marriage, ranging from some minor differences on parenting or finances, all the way up to significant abuse or neglect. And if you have such a situation, you have the response. We actually, how do we put it? We say we exhort you to come to the elders and seek our assistance. So our hope is if that if a couple in our church is going through that, and that woman picks up that booklet and sees that, she goes, oh, I'm actually supposed to come to the pastor. I don't have to just suffer in silence the rest of my life. That gives us the chance to intervene before things are damaged so much that can't be repaired. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of proactive things I think churches can do much more aggressively than this and just being much clearer, clearer on their, their theological positions on divorce, marriage, and remarriage, for example. And there's also, I mean, because you've done a lot of it, marital conciliation as well, correct? Yes. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because before I, you know, became familiar with you and your work, I had never really heard of marital conciliation before. So maybe yeah. some people listening haven't either. Yeah. Yeah. It's, when people come to me over the years, um, they're usually Christians. Most people I've worked with are, are professing Christians. And they will either come to me because they sincerely are looking for help in either trying to save their marriage or at least go through a divorce with as little trauma and expense as possible. So think we can help. Sometimes they come to me because they they want some accredited Christian to give the stamp of approval to their divorce. Okay, their motive is not really the best motive. But I don't care what their motive is. I I want them to walk through my door because then I can start to engage them and I'll, I'll hear their story, hear what's going on. Whatever I assess their motivation would be, I'll lay out basically the three things that we make clear. Number one, um, we believe it's your church's responsibility to guide you on the theological legitimacy of your divorce. We're not here to impose our theology. I, I may share my my thoughts and views on it, but it's your pastor and your elders who need to help you make that theological decision. Secondly, um, we will help you deal with the legal issues attendant to a divorce, but only after you've made a good faith effort to, number one, understand your own contribution to the breakdown of your marriage, because if you don't understand that, you'll carry those relational deficits in the future. And most people acknowledge that's true. Yeah, I probably should learn. Secondly, we want to make sure that we've made every reasonable effort to reconcile the marriage. We can't force it. It has to be a united decision, but we want to give you every opportunity to do that. If you will deal with those things in good faith, and you still, one of you still decides to pursue a divorce, then we will work on child custody, property settlement, visitation, and those things. So they may just be wanting the, the, the fast, easy, and expensive divorce, but we put them through a process of first understanding the relationship, and that's often what turns people around. And that's when we get into basic peacemaking principles, relational wisdom. We start giving people tools to deal with the things that cause so much damage. There are many people, Kimberly, particularly I would say men, who've never seen an example of a father admitting he was wrong. Yeah. And if, if, if you cannot, in a marriage where two sinners come together, learn how to say, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I lost my temper. I spoke sharply. It was wrong. Please forgive. If you, if you can't do that, there's just a steady accumulation of offenses and hurts. And what confession does is it empties that. So learning confession, repentance, forgiveness, 
negotiation skills, managing emotions, preventing emotional hijacking. When people start get these skills, they start saying, hey, we can start to deal with this conflict. I can, I can learn how not to lose my temper all the time. And if I don't lose my temper, there's a better chance my spouse won't be triggered either. And so they start learning tools that finally say, let's give this a try. Let's turn it around. Well, all of a sudden, and that's just another way that going back to even kind of how we started the conversation that you, you can infuse hope. That's another, so, you know, repentance and that kind of, and like the spiritual work being done and also the really like relational skills. (laughs) And, and like you said, all of a sudden, if they are, there's still a spiritual dimension there, their willingness to engage that, but but all of a sudden there's there's a glimmer of light saying, oh, well, we can we're we're communicating in a way that we never have before. Maybe we can make this That's maybe right. we can make this work. Yeah. Yeah. I love to hold out to people the possibility you could be a living testimony of how a marriage that was almost completely in the rocks turned around into a beautiful, loving, intimate, joy-filled relationship. And this could become your major ministry the rest of your life is helping other couples who were where you were when you came in. Give them something to aspire to. And I've seen it. I've seen people in horrible marriage and they become a testimony to the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So one quick, one last fairly quick question, because it may be the exact same, but I do want to explore it. So we've been talking about that largely in the context of the church and with professing believers. In your opinion, is there apart from apart from Jesus, you know, and I and not I don't say that in a way that diminishes. I obviously believe he's the straw that holds everything together. Mm-hmm. So, but apart from their turning to the Lord, do you think that there's a way that the church can help essentially this this wound in society in a in a non-judgmental way, you know, that doesn't necessarily mandate that they accept Jesus or yeah. or I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm a huge, huge believer in the concept of common grace. And that God pours out grace through through general revelation and common grace. God gives people in society who don't acknowledge his existence at all, don't even believe there's a God, and yet he pours his grace into their lives where they get up in the morning and they say good morning, they smile at their spouse, and they go to work and they obey the traffic. I mean, those are all manifestations of God holding society together, preventing chaos, just as he brings some measure of decency, civility, moral understanding. I mean, my father wasn't a Christian until about an hour before he died. He was one of the most empathetic, compassionate, kind, gentle, generous people I knew my entire life, even before he acknowledged Jesus Christ and and put his trust in Jesus. So yes, I believe that non-Christians can I, sh- I think there should be a huge marked difference between someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit and forgiven in Christ. There should be such a difference between our behavior, and tragically, there isn't always. I know non-Christians who are more humble, more kind, more reasonable than some Christians are. So just because you're a Christian, even genuinely regenerate, doesn't mean your, your behavior changes. But yes, to go to your direct question directly, I think non-Christians can benefit from the biblical wisdom God gives to us in His Word. I mean, just something as simple as first get the speck out of your own eye before trying to get the log or the log out of your own eye before you get the speck out. So that simple principle is one of the most most important relational principles in the world. Just take responsibility. And once I do that, it's amazing how often the other person responds the same way. 
So I do training in secular venues. We're working in the military, businesses, schools, police departments, teaching just relational principles in God's from God's word. They're all biblically grounded because God designed human nature and his principles of humility, kindness, gentleness, personal responsibility are good for society. Um, but we, we will teach those without an explicit religious framework. Now, what I will often do, though, I'll ask questions of an audience that are specifically designed to give the Christians in the audience the opportunity to, to voice, yes, I, I struggle with confession for many years, but when a friend told me about Jesus, I put my trust in him, it gave me humility. So there's people in the audience that are bringing Christ into it. But I'll be up there just teaching some of the basic relational conflict resolution principles from a secular perspective. And I think they could be beneficial. I mean, I, I want my non-Christian neighbors to obey the traffic signs in Billings, Montana. Yeah. <laughs> it's everyone's benefit. And so, yes, I think they can benefit. Uh, the other thing I think we can do is that our marriages as Christians should be an enticement, a fragrance to non-Christians. In fact, that's what really brought me to Christ. I had uh, a roommate in graduate school and then two people when I was working as an engineer that were Christian marriages. And I watched how they related to their wives. And I thought, I want that. And that's what drew me to the church. I saw these Christian marriages. The analogy I would use, if I walk into a mall, Kimberly, and there's a Cinnabon store there, you go... Mmm, something smells good here. You know, where's the Cinnabon store? And that's what Christian marriages should be. There should be a fragrance about us and not one that's perfect. We, everything's easy. We should be open about our testimony. We should talk about our struggles and yet how we had to work it through. Then people say, oh, I can relate to you. Yeah, I've got a temper too, or I can be very bitter, or I can fall into self-pity. How did you do that? How did you overcome that? So let's be transparent about our weaknesses that his grace might be magnified. Hmm. Hmm. I really love that. I love the idea of the, the fragrant marriages. I think yeah. that, you know, and, and like you said, especially not, <laughs> not in the sense that they look at it and it just looks like uh, the cleavers from, it, it right. leaves, from leave it to be yep. heard. Ah, yeah. yep. Look at that. I'm not a completely like young millennial. <laughs> um <laughs> But, you know, it doesn't have to look picture perfect. It's actually more powerful if it says, you know, like, yeah, we went through a horrible, you know, spell of, you know, this person, like this spouse had awful anxiety and we really struggled, you know, and this is how, you know, the other spouse really showed love in a way that, you know, they had never experienced before, you know, and, yep. and, and unpacking all of that all of a sudden gives the fragrance. I love that. And, yep. and obviously it's, it, you know, spreads the gospel in a really meaningful and potentially like a, a new and different way than, you know, the, the pamphlets and the track. If I could put in just one little pitch, if I might, Kimberly, sure. Go for um, it. an ounce of prevention is worth $50,000 worth of attorney's fees. <laughs> and so the more that we in the church and even individually as Christians and help people develop healthier relational skills before there's a crisis, the better. And so that's what our educational materials are designed for, Sunday school classes, small group studies on conflict resolution, 
and a concept we call relational wisdom, which is basically biblical emotional intelligence. And the more people can use, develop those good skills, even starting very young, we've got material for first graders, but the more we can learn those things, especially if we model them for the young children, they see that, teach those things in our churches, learn how to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're old, if you're old enough to remember Happy Days with Fonzie, mm-hmm. one of the most popular clips in that movie was Fonzie trying to admit he was wrong. He couldn't say it. I was. Yeah, <laughs> we, as, we as Christian parents should make sure our kids see, yes, this is part of reality. We have to sometimes say, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. So as we as adults learn these concepts from God's word, as we model them to our children, as we invite, I mean, you could have a Christian in a secular workplace who would use our values-based material, secular material, invite coworkers, brown bag lunch once a week. Let's discover this concept of relational wisdom. It's enhanced emotional intelligence. That's a way for you as a Christian to bring wisdom principles to your coworkers. And it might actually open the door at some point the, the typical thing is where people say, this all sounds good, but I just can't change. And you as a Christian could say, you know, I can't either. In my own strength, impossible. But what changed for me was Jesus Christ. And so it's even a way to witness. So I would just put in a pitch for prevention is so much more valuable than an agonizing divorce mediation. Hmm. I, yeah, I'm I'm a huge believer in it, obviously. <laughs> um This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's whereyafrom.org. I'm Russell Berry reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. So I can, our time is up and I just want to thank you so much for your time in being with us and really appreciate the wisdom and unpacking of so many years of practice with helping people manage this as well as thinking through it and writing and that kind of thing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kimberly. It's always a privilege to work with you. Thank you. And we will also want to thank those of you who are listening for being uh, with us and hanging with us all the way through the conversation if you're here. And um, we just ask that you be sure to join us next time when we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.